Hi, everybody. How was your Thanksgiving? How, who still has leftovers? You? Okay, yeah. All right. I want some. We're out. Yeah. Molly gives, like, the leftovers a couple days, and then that's it. Because small fridge, y'all. We got six. We got four kids. I said six kids because that's what it feels like sometimes. Uh, we got four kids in the small fridge, and, you know, and they don't really, little kids don't really love Thanksgiving food. It's kind of sad. Anyways, enough about my problems. Last week, uh, we... <laughs> I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. All that to say, I hope you all had a good Thanksgiving. Glad to have you guys back here. If you're tuning in online, happy to have you here. Some people are still traveling. The Strobels, I believe, are home now, but they drove all night. They are intense. Strobels, you are intense. We'll totally find that you're not at church. Hopefully, maybe they're watching in bed, or hopefully they're asleep. Um, but we'll, we'll see. Um, glad, looking forward to this in- upcoming season here as we, we he- head into Christmas. Uh, last week we started a very short series through the book of Malachi. It's only going to be three weeks. This is week two of three, uh, through the book of Malachi. Uh, and I'm excited about Malachi. Um, I think it's a great way to prepare us for the Christmas season. Now, maybe you just like know a little bit about the book of Malachi, or maybe you have your Bible open to the book, the chapter of Malachi, which, which you should. Um, by the way, and you're just like skimming it really quick and you're like leaning over to your spouse and saying, I don't think this guy knows what Christmas is. I don't, I'm not sure if he's aware of what Christmas is like because Malachi and Christmas don't, don't feel like they go together. Uh, because if you go through uh, like this really short book, you'll see, well, God is like actually just being really pushy, right? He's, he's, he's not, you can't say that about God. He's not being pushy. He's being very clear. He's being very, very direct. He's dealing with some specific issues in Israel, sin issues. And last week we talked about uh, how God had called them out really on, on very specific things, specifically for, for just not recognizing his faithfulness to them, to the people of Israel, and um, not recognizing his faithfulness um, because of their bitterness, and also particularly calling out how the, the priests who had been called to, to, to worship the Lord continually, and, and according to a certain uh, set of rules, uh, he called them out how, how really these priests are just keeping up appearances. They're really not doing what they're called to be doing. They're actually just, just doing it, they're, but they don't actually want to worship the Lord at all. And actually what, what, what God says is you're actually kind of faking it, like so that no one else can see it, so that it looks like you're doing what I called you to do, but you know that you're not, and I know that you're not. And, and so as we go through today... Um, we're going to also see how God is, is, is pointing out other things. I mean, that's what prophets do. They call people back to faithfulness. They point to their, their, their issues. Um, he's calling particularly out their I- injustice and their impurity, particularly when it comes to marriage. And um, we'll talk about that in a second. Um, and, and next week, we're going to talk about, you know, the greed and the selfishness that was, was, was an issue in Israel. So, yeah, I mean, feels very Christmas spirit, right? It was very, very exciting. I mean, so, like, I mean, just like, let's ask the question. What does this, calling out people's sin, have to do with stars and wise men and the sweet baby Jesus, right? Because that's what Christmas is, I think, right? Well, it, it has to do with it because in the midst of all this correction, Malachi presents a reason for hope, a very clear and compelling reason for these people to be hopeful. We read about it, and we talked about it last week, Malachi 3, 1 through 4. God tells them this, See, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. 
And then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant you delight in. See, he's coming, says the Lord of armies. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's bleach. He will be like a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And then they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will please the Lord as in the days of old and years gone by. See, Malachi is, I think, a good way to prepare us for Christmas because Malachi anticipates that God is going to resolve all these problems that he's calling out, resolve the unfaithfulness, resolve the endemic problems of sin and the kind of the treadmill that the people of Israel were over. He's going to resolve it because he's saying that the Lord, the Messiah, Jesus, is going to be coming into his temple. And all this impurity and all this sin, it's finally going to be dealt with in a a really serious way. And Jesus is going to come, this Messiah is going to come like a refiner's fire. That is, he's going to be like, like, like a purifying metal with great heat, removing the impurities. Like a launderer's bleach, we know what that is. He's like Tide. Jesus is like Tide Pods. I'm sorry, I didn't, I, that wasn't funny. Uh, so, so God's people can once again worship the Lord with integrity. So we get, I I think, it's clear enough, the Jesus connection. But honestly, I I feel like there's there's another question to, to be asked here. Because here's Malachi. He's talking to Israel. He's calling them out. And he's saying, hey, there's going to be this one who's going to come. Anticipate him. Hope in him. But we know from, from history that from the time of Malachi's speaking and or writing, he spoke and then he wrote, to the people of, of Israel, there's 400 years until the Messiah comes. So, so Malachi knows that they're just waiting for someone who really isn't yet there. And he, he might not have known it was going to be 400 years, but he understands that there is just this call to waiting. So if Malachi knows, man, they're just, they're just waiting for someone who's not here yet, for a solution really that hasn't been made available to their problems yet, then I, what's up with that? Because it seems to the people 400 years before Jesus' birth, it seems a little unfair, right? If I told you, like, if you're, um, I don't know, say you're bankrupt, and I say, listen, be really hopeful, it's going to work out in 400 years. (laughs) That's not very helpful. I mean, just honestly, that's not very helpful to you in the moment. It might be helpful to your great-great-grandchildren, but it's not helpful to you right now in this very moment. What is up with that? Because it, it seems sort of mean, and it seems like, like just like prolonging. What is the, because I think there has to be, what is the thing that the Israelites can do right now in response? What is possible for them right now? Right? Because if it's just well, anticipating something that's coming, that seems a little bit rough. You heard, if you heard last week's sermon, uh, you know that we, we talked a little bit about how we think about Scripture, and particularly the Old Testament. Um, in, you, if you heard it, you know that the first thing that we need to ask when we start to interpret Scripture is this question, and it's, I think I have it up here. Uh, what did it mean to them then? That's the first question we need to ask. And then, and only once we answer that question, can we go on determine what does it mean to us now? We can ask the applicational question to our own lives. So, like, 
What is Malachi telling them then? What is the significance of, of all of this letter to them then in that moment? Is God just setting them up for failure for a prolonged period of waiting time for something that's for us but not for them? Or is he just like, like dangling something in front of them? I, I don't think he is. I actually believe that what Malachi is saying, yes, he's saying wait for this Messiah, wait in hope because it will surely be fulfilled. But as you wait, there is something you, you can be doing. There is a way for you to start to deal with these issues. And it's not something that's going to come about after you're dead. It's something that you can take action on right now. And we, we read about that in Malachi 3, 6 through 7. So in the conclusion of the book, this is kind of where he lands. He says, because I, the Lord, I've not changed. Your descendants, you descendants of Jacob, you've not been destroyed. Since the days of your ancestors, you have turned from my statutes. You've not kept them. Return to me. And I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. So yes, this is absolutely a book anticipating what would come. <laughs> anticipating what we get to see now, that Jesus has come fulfilling these promises. Yes and amen. But it is also meaning something to them right now. They were called to set their hope on what would come. And yet also in this moment right now to return to the Lord to come back to him, to renew their, their faithfulness to him. See, Israel could do that right then and there. They could do something about their predicament. They could return. And sure, for, for Israel in particular, that involved, like he says here, coming back to these commandments and statues that Moses taught them. But understand, the call to return, underlying that is something really beyond just mere obedience. See, God sees Israel's failure for what it really is, and it's not merely a legal failure. They didn't just not obey. It's deeper than that. What they had done and what, what God is doing in calling them out, and we talked about it some last week, and we'll talk about it again this week. He's talking about the deeper issues at stake, not just the fact that they haven't obeyed the law, but the fact that they have just failed to love God. They failed to care about him. They'd just given up on him. They, they failed to see, to have any hope in him in general. See, Israel's life with God wasn't merely just about doing things for God as if God just wanted like, like a maid to keep the moral universe clean or something. Israel's uh, calling and life with God was about more than that. They were called to love him. And Malachi knows that their failure to obey stems from their failure to love. Now, maybe you're thinking, is that really true? That doesn't sound right because, because we remember that Jesus, Jesus was the guy who talked about love. And these, these Old Testament people, they didn't really get the whole love thing. You probably remember Matthew 22, verse 37. Jesus uh, tells a group of Pharisees who come and question him. He says, he says um, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment. It's like we, Jesus really emphasized this love stuff. But we shouldn't think just because Jesus was so focused, laser focused on loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, that that wasn't the original call to Israel like from the beginning. And we know this because actually when Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, he's actually just quoting Moses in Deuteronomy 6, right? The beginning. In Deuteronomy 6, Moses tells them, you know what he tells them? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. 
These words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your heart and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your city gates. The call to Israel from the very beginning was to love the Lord with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, and then to build their lives from the way they raised their children to the way they went through their day-to-day to the way they even built their homes, to build their lives around these words and around this call to love the Lord. Not just to, to do some stuff for God because God likes stuff getting done, but the call was to love from the beginning. And what Jesus told the people, it's the same thing that Moses told them and the same thing that all the prophets had been telling them. That if you're going to serve God, if you're going to keep this covenant which he's invited you into, if you're going to obey him, you need to love him first and foremost. And if you haven't loved him well, it's not, ooh, watch out. It's not, ooh, God's going to get really mad. It's return to him and he'll return to you. Jesus' call to the people was, return, come back, love the Lord again, receive his promises, step into it now. If today you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. It's the call, call we hear repeated throughout scripture. I think it's like a six different times that verse is quoted throughout the scriptures. We are people, and they were people who are called to return to God, to hear what he says, to love him, to understand that his promises are good, and his commandments are good, and his, his blessing is great, and his gifts are amazing, and we should receive them joyfully. We need to love the Lord our God. They needed to love the Lord their God. And at Christmas... We see this so clearly. We're invited into that love. We're invited into a relationship with God, just as they were then. To try to serve God without loving him always fails. There's just no, there's just no motive, motive behind it if you don't love the Lord. And Malachi could see that clearly. He calls out some of their ways, things that are playing, the, the ways that this like lack of love, which is leading to disobedience, is playing out in their life. We re- read about that in Malachi 2. I'm just going to read a, a passage here. So it's kind of a longer one. It says, Judah has acted treacherously, and a detestable act has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's sanctuary, which he loves, and he married the daughters of a foreign god, you're covering the altars with tears. I skipped ahead a little bit. Covering the, uh, you're covering the Lord's altars with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer respects your offerings or receives them gladly from your hands. And you ask, why? Because even though the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, you've acted treacherously against her. She was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. Didn't God make them one and give them a portion of spirit? What is the one seeking? Godly offspring. So watch yourselves carefully so that no one acts treacherously against the wife of his youth. If he hates, uh, if he hates uh, and divorces his wife, says the Lord of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice, says the Lord of armies. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously. 
Now, as we dig here in, into this little passage, and I mean, it's obviously a little section on divorce. Can I just remind you of, of what I just told you before? That when we're interpreting scripture, the first thing we need to do is what? I said, what did it mean to them? We need to ask that question. Before we begin to apply it to us now, we need to say, what was God saying to them then before we can understand what does it mean for us now? And I say that because it's easy for me to bring up the D word, divorce, and then like so many of you are just getting on the guilt train. So sometimes saying, don't get on the guilt train, hear what's being said to them first. Before you start to go down your, down your head and think about shame, if, if, if maybe you have divorced, or maybe your parents were divorced, or maybe someone you know is divorced, right? So just stop your brain for a minute. That's all I'm saying. Just stop your brain for a minute. Because until you understand what's being said to them, then you can't like really get to the, the meat and potatoes of this now. See, what's happening here, and we know from the context is that divorce was a growing problem in Israel at this time. It seems that what had happened is that it had become fashionable for these Israelite men to end their first marriages after a few years, end the marriages that like their families had arranged to other Israelite women, maybe after they had a couple kids, and then they would divorce these women, and then they would remarry non-Israelite women. And God, like it says here, like God hates this. He hates it for two reasons. First, because God had commanded the Israelites uh, like not to, to, to marry outside of their, their tribe, outside of people who, who shared their beliefs and their values, the reason being that there was going to be 400 years, and they needed to be faithful and preserve their, 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 their uh, waiting and their hope and their expectation. And if they were going to intermarry with people who, who didn't share their beliefs, like how were their kids going to continue to do this stuff, this calling, this Deuteronomy stick stuff of teaching it to your children, binding it on your hearts, putting it on your doorposts? See, what God had called them to do is to be people who were fully devoted to, to the worship of the Lord. And so if they would marry people who didn't worship the Lord, like that was going to derail the plan. But not only that, divorce was grievous to God because, as, as it says here, it was, it was treacherous. It was a treacherous thing. It was an unjust thing. God saw how wrong it was for these men to just marry young women and then when they just got sick of them or, or decided, oh, there's, there's, a, there's a better woman over here, just, just to abandon them. Because in Israel and in most of the ancient world, like there wasn't a social safety net. If, if a woman got divorced, there was very little hope for her. She could maybe, if she could still go, go back to her father's house and move back in there, but there wasn't work for her to have. You know, there, there weren't opportunities. And so it was a really unjust thing. They took their covenants seriously because it was how they were going to sustain life and live. But the men doing this, man, they didn't, not only did they just not see that it was a problem at all because they said they, they read the law and they said, well, there is divorce allowed in some scenarios. And so can't we just do that whenever we want? And so they, they get angry with God, actually. When God calls them out, they just say, why? Like, why is it that you reject our offerings? Like, we haven't done anything wrong. We're, we're doing fine. 
And God says, well, it's because you, you made this covenant with your wife before me, and you, and you don't honor it. You don't, you don't care about me. You don't care about the seriousness of what I called you. You don't care about my, my justice or my calling or, or the plan that I have for you. Or Malachi, he goes on to explain here in, in verse 17, he says, you've wearied me with your words. And yet you ask me, how have we wearied him? When you say, everyone who does evil, uh, who does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight, and he's delighted with them, or else where is the God of justice? See, what's gone on is in Israel is like, okay, these people are just, they're just going their own ways. They're deciding to, to do things according to their own standards. They're, they're casting off their covenants. The priests are just like not really, really doing this whole worship thing. And everyone is in the back of their minds. You know, they, they've come back from exile from Babylon and they have these great expectations and they feel disappointed and they're wondering to themselves, where's God? Like, why doesn't he listen to us? Why doesn't he come and bring about all these great promises that he made? Because it, to them, at least, it seemed like, like they're saying here, that everyone who does what's evil is good in the Lord's sight because God doesn't seem to come and, and punish in the way that he should. God isn't, isn't punishing those who are oppressing us from outside. God isn't, isn't uh, rebuking those who are doing evil within. They're basically saying, where is God? Where is this God of justice that we worship? They've ceased to put their hope in him. They question God's character. They wonder if God can be just. And they wonder why he hasn't just come yet and delivered them. They're growing impatient. They're growing indifferent. And they're growing bitter. But all in the midst of that, they're completely blind to their own dishonesty and their own injustice. In a way that they're just acting out in selfishness in their marriages and in their worship. And as we'll see next week in, in the way that they give or don't give with their finances. But what God is telling them through the prophets over and over again is that he actually has not abandoned them. The fact that they came back from the land is remarkable. God hasn't forgotten about them. What's happened is that they've forgotten about him. And they're called to love him. They've been blinded by their own desires, by their sin, by their selfishness, and then they turn around and blame God for it. They say, where are you, God? Like, why don't you receive us? They aren't keeping their end of this bargain that Israel had, uniquely Israel had, with God. And so what does God tell them? He says, look it. Before you do anything, just return to me. Consider what I've done. Get the blinders off your eyes. Put the bitterness away. Recognize my faithfulness to you. Because you're so consumed with your little problems that you just forget how I've sustained you. And if you would just focus on that for a minute, how I loved you, which is the first proclamation that God makes in the book of Malachi. We talked about that last week, Malachi 1-2. If you would remember that, then maybe that would draw you back in to return to me. You need to love me. So that was then, them, then, right? They were called to return, to love God. What of us now? How can we apply these scriptures in our own life? 
it's, it's a question that we need to be a little bit careful with, right? Because we have to recognize some differences. And number one is that we are not Jewish, um, unless you are. I don't, I, I don't think you are. I'm not Jewish. I, I hope that's not a surprise to you. I'm not Jewish, and I am particularly not somebody who has entered into the Mosaic covenant, right? Israel had this covenant with Moses. It was a covenant, a certain agreement that they had that was particular to them. They had these laws that they had to keep. We don't have that. But we do have much that is similar. In fact, Paul tells us about that in Galatians 3. And I, I should have put this point number one at the end of this, now that I'm saying it out loud. But I didn't. So the first point is, man, like, what, what can we do? How can we, how can we apply this scripture now? I, I think it's first that we can either receive or return to the promise of God for you, right? Look, Israel had this particular covenant that they were a part of, but they also had this earlier set of promises, promises given to Abraham, which were just these unconditional promise that God was going to bless them. And what we know from Scripture, what Paul tells us in Galatians 3, is that we get to be a part of that promise. He says, says this in Galatians 3.21, If the law could give us new life, we could have been made right with God by obeying it. But the Scriptures declare that we're all prisoners of sin, and so we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You're his heirs. And God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. Before we can actually like apply this to ourselves, we have to understand that through faith in Jesus Christ, God has opened up this promise. This promise that we could love him and he could, would love us. This promise that we could have a relationship with him. Not on the basis of our goodness or all the things that we could do, but on the basis of his simple offering of blessing. Now that you belong to Christ, you're children of Abraham, you're heirs of God's promise, of the prom promise of Abraham, and it belongs to you. What we need to understand before we can like even start to think about applying to ourselves is that what Jesus Christ has done is he's taken this, this little promise that was made and it seemed like it was just for this one little people in this one little time, in this one little place, these children of Abraham by blood. And what Jesus has come as the Messiah is he's done, he says, yeah, like I am going to bless Israel through, through my birth, death, resurrection, all this stuff that we celebrate at Christmas. He says, but what I'm going to do is through my work on the cross is I'm going to expand that blessing that was just for this one people to anyone who would come in by faith in me. And so you are here, not because you're Jewish, but 
if you're here and you've put your faith in Christ, if you've trusted in what he's done in the significance of him taking away sin, and you understand that it is just a wide-open invitation to walk into promise and blessing and a love relationship with God, then you can have these promises. And you can have this and hear and receive this call to return or maybe come for the first time and just say, okay, God, I used to think you were just so, so severe and so judgy and so rude, but now I just see, Lord, you're a God who wants to bless the world. And so how can I resist you? Why shouldn't I return to you? If you have my best interests at heart, and if you've loved me and done it so thoroughly, and I, and just like in my sin, like I just, I get so blind to it, Lord, like, could you just wake me up, and would you let me see that actually you're a God who blesses and cares for people? The significance of the cross and the reason that Jesus came and took on flesh was to make that so clear for the whole world that this love of God, this relationship with God was now open to anyone by faith. Through this promise to Abraham, the whole world would be blessed, and that's because this Messiah was going to come and reveal to the world the love and grace and kindness and forgiveness of God. And it's not something that we have to perform for, but we just understand that it's proclaimed and revealed at the cross, the only thing we do to step into, to receive this promise, is just put our faith in it. Put our faith that Jesus does reveal something true about who God is. He does reveal to me that God is a God of blessing and of forgiveness. And that truly, I can just put my whole life before him and I can just return to him or come to him for the first time. And that all the good that I can expect in life and all the hope that I can put in life and everything that I can build my life around can be directed towards God because of what Jesus has done. So if we want to apply these things now, return to God in the same way that they were called to return, then we need to understand and squarely, squarely understand that, man, we have blessing because of Jesus Christ. We have life and peace and forgiveness because of what he's done. And we can, by faith, Trust and receive that. Receive forgiveness of sins and adoption into his promises. It's such a good deal. It's such a good deal. Number two, we can return to the promise by accepting the life that you have as a gift. What we see throughout the book of Malachi is that God's people move away from him because they're constantly resenting the life they have. They're constantly resenting things as they are, that they're not as good as they could be, that everything isn't already fulfilled, that we still have to wait. The priests just thought worship was a burden. It was a drag. We do this every day. We worship the Lord. Oh, oh. I'd rather play video games. I just look at the light and blind to myself. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be a minute. 
uh, the men, the men, they thought their marriage drags were a va- their marriage vows were a drag. <laughs> Marriage drags were a vow. I almost said, their marriage vows were a drag. Like, they just think, oh, gosh, I, was, I had to get married to this woman, and, like, oh, it's just not going great. She doesn't really complete me the way I'd like her to. You know, oh, it's just such a burden to worship the Lord and to love my spouse. And there's all this bitterness. They couldn't see that God was at work all around them. That God wanted to really do something in their life and bless them. See, they had been people of promise. The whole Israel story is that they're people of promise. You know what God does? He takes them out of Egypt, and you know where he brings them? The promised land, (laughs) right? Their whole story, their whole autobiography of where they came from, it's about God promising and fulfilling. God promising and fulfilling. And we see iteration and iteration after this. God, God brought Abraham and his children and settled them in the land. And God, God's like, I'm going to bless you here. And then what does he do? He, he sends them to Egypt in order to, to be saved from a famine. God promised he'd always look out for them. And he did it in a remarkable way. He took them out of the land. And then after 400 years, funny, that's a funny number. After 400 years, things didn't go so well. And so what does God do? do? He, he He sends Moses, and Moses brings them back to the promised land because God is always fulfilling his promises. God's been faithful generation after generation to these people. And then they they stop loving him, and they're just like disobedient, and eventually the Babylonians come in and and invade them and scatter them. And what does God do? He, He gives them some time to cool off, but then he brings them back. He promised he would do it, so he does it. He brings them back from where they were carried. God is in the promise-keeping business. But the people just couldn't see it. They wouldn't get over their dissatisfaction with the way things were. And they couldn't get their eyes fixed upon the promise. Look, until you see your life, the life that you have right now in this very moment with all the good and the bad of it as a gift from God, then I just think you'll be resentful and you'll be bitter in the same way that these people were. Because here's the thing. What we do is, is we get in our heads... And we say, well, if God cared about me, and if he blessed me, I wouldn't have these struggles, and I wouldn't have these difficulties, and I wouldn't have this trauma, and I wouldn't have this pain, or I wouldn't have this habit, or this desire. And so we say, well, because of the past, the future blessing of God can't be true. But here's the thing, we have to remember this about God. God is not in the business of erasing the past, but of redeeming the past. Saying, yeah, like there have been difficulties and you've been uh, maybe a little bit grouchy along the way, right? And you have your failings, but the call is to us right now, return in the hope and expectation that God is good and he's gracious and he's kind and he loves you. No one can rob me. Of like just like stepping into these blessings that God has promised, like me and my own negative, discouraged talk. I get so resentful because I don't understand that right here in this moment, my life is just a gift with endless potential. Because God doesn't need to erase the pain I've gone through, 
He doesn't need to make me a different person. He can take me, the person that I am right now, forgive me and bless me and redeem my past. Would Israel have rather not gone to Egypt, not been in slavery, not been in exile? Sure. But those things in no way made it justified for them to not see that God was watching out for them at every turn. And we can return to the Lord, we can return to God, and we can take the life that you have. You you can take the life that you have. I can take the life that I have right now and just understand that it is a total gift from God with endless potential. It doesn't matter what's gone on in my past. And I'm not saying that doesn't make my past painful. It doesn't make the present a walk in the park necessarily. But it does give me every reason to be hopeful. God wants to do awesome things so we can return to the promise and accept the life that we have as a gift. I mean, and... Honestly, like this is really helpful for your marriage. This is where this is this was in, came out of a conversation Molly and I had a couple couple of days ago. You're just talking, and it's like, well, okay, so like just like to get practical, right? Here we go. This will be fun. What do you do when your spouse is a jerk? <laughs> I do you say, ah, oh, you're the worst. You're this again. You're never gonna change. Or do you just like say, honey? I just thank you. I'm just going to receive, like, I'm going I'm to believe that actually God has put me in this marriage for a reason and that I've taken these promises before him for a reason. And I'm just going to receive this difficulty as a gift because I'm really confident that God is not going to erase the fact that you're a jerk sometimes, right? <laughs> not, not my wife. Uh, not going to take those things away, but that God can renew and restore and redeem everything about your marriage, even though it's not perfect. Even it's not, like, whatever that means. Like, tell me, person who has a perfect marriage. I don't think so. I mean, that's, that's part of it, too. Like, like I've gotten some sub-points. You know, we're going, <laughs> going into 2A. 2A uh, is that we have to stop comparing. That's it. A lot of times we end up not enjoying the gifts that we have in life because we're comparing the things that we have with the things that other people have. I kind of was hesitant to make this point because I consider myself a very serious theological person. I'm very serious, guys. (laughs) And that's just like the most hallmark card wisdom ever, right? Like, that's so, so pedestrian to say stop comparing. Like, you, you turn on any YouTube channel and anyone who has any advice about anything will tell you, you don't compare. Don't be comparing. But here's the thing is, I don't know anybody who can do it. Like, all these people are like, oh, just stop comparing. Don't compare your life to other people. And everybody's constantly comparing all the time. This is, what, this is why we can't take our marriage as a gift, right? Because we look at other other potential spouses, right, or other people's uh, uh, jobs, or other people's homes, or other people's children, or other people's um, seemingly happy lives, and we just compare our lives to them, and then we just say, why can't I have that gift, you know, and it ends up just robbing us of any potential for for joy and to receive any blessing that we have. Like, if, if we're going to put a stop to this, like, habit 
of not being thankful for the things we have, then we just have to put an end to the comparison. And I'm not, I, I can't give you like the three steps to do that. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you one thing that helped me. Because I'm, I'm, I'm prone to this, just like everybody. We're all, we all do this all the time. When I, for, when, this, this probably only in the last about 10 years of my life, I felt like the Lord, um, well, actually, no, I, I can recognize points along the way. Where, where God put me at points where I had to, either had to choose, or I felt like God just like made something clear to me about myself. And, and knowing who I was a little bit more eliminated other possibilities. That makes sense conceptually? What I'm saying is that if you want to stop comparing yourself, if you want to stop coveting other people's lives, get with the Lord and say, God, who, who am I? How have you made me? Like, in what ways can I live as the person that I am and just, like, enjoy your blessing? Like, be a blessing to other people. But a lot of times we look at other people and we just want to be like them, but, like, we aren't them. So comparing ourselves to them is just silly because you aren't like your neighbor and you aren't like your friends. You're different. How has God made you? What's unique about you? The church, if we, if we look at like, you know, First and Second Corinthians, like, like the church is made up of many different types of people, but it's only when all those different types of people come together that we can be whole. Different gifts, different callings, different purposes. That's not just like a modern idea of celebrating the individual. It's true. It's always been true. You're not your neighbor. You have a unique way to be yourself and to step into what God has called you to. So like, if you want to stop comparing, get with the Lord in the secret place, like we talked about last week, and just say, God, who am I even? It's a question worth asking, because once we know who we are, we can know who we're not. And that's a really freeing thing. And then finally, um, see limitations as a part of the gift. If we're going to receive our life as a gift, then we understand that gifts come with limitations. I, I've talked before about my covetousness of Teslas, right? But if someone were to give me a Tesla, that'd be a terrible gift for me. Because I live in an apartment. I don't have a garage. So you'd be saying, here, here's this gift. If you want to drive it, you've got to wait like 40 minutes to charge it in a public place in the cold. Like maybe, I don't know, like every three days. I don't want that in my life. Like, you know what? Like it would be great to have a Tesla. They're cool. They're awesome. And I, I'm not comparing myself to you for having one, but I might borrow it sometime. Um, <laughs> I. Like, sometimes, like, if, if you were to give me that gift, like, it w I couldn't make really good use of it as a daily driver because I can't just plug it in at night, which is what I would want it for. Like, just like an endless supply. I wouldn't have to go to the gas station anymore. I would be awesome, but I would need a garage to do that. Sometimes you get a gift, but to really do anything with it, you need to accept that there are conditions on that gift. If you're going to live the life that you have, that means you can't live other people's lives. You just accept that there are conditions. And that's the thing. is like, like, 
Israel is just bucking against the conditions all the time. Like, well, we're called to love, and we're called to worship, and we're called to act in this certain way, and oh, it's just so tedious, and it's so difficult. But that attitude, not, not accepting that the limitations are a part of the gift, is what would rob them from really enjoying the gift. One of my favorite theologians, William, William Barclay, he says, grace is unconditional, but it's not unconditioned. By which he means, man, we get the love and the promise and the blessings of God unconditional. It's not about your performance. It's not about how good of a person you are. It's just on the basis of faith. Just I turn to Jesus. I surrender to him. I put my hope in him. I remove, lay my sin before him. I say, God, make me into who you want to be. I, I just come to him with my whole heart, and I come gratefully receiving that. That's unconditional gift. His, his blessings are unconditional, but they are conditioned in that if I want to keep enjoying this life that he promises me, it means that I can't do certain things. Not because God is authoritarian or a jerk, but because my life with God, full of blessing, full of promise, full of faith, is not compatible with my comparison and my covetousness and my injustice and my selfishness. I can't have both of those things inside this one body and mind and spirit at the same time. If I want the blessing of God, then all my hope and expectation needs to be rested upon Him and not chasing after my desires. Grace is unconditional, but it's not unconditional. And modern people, particularly when it comes to like moral codes like we see in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we have a lot of trouble understanding this. But consider this, maybe some things are good and some things are bad, not just because God arbitrarily has decided that this, this stuff is bad and this stuff is good, but because some things make it impossible for us to enjoy God's blessings. We're going to take communion. Worship team is going to come up here. But I just want to sit and, and think about that. Because here we have, like, just, just like to recap really quick. We can receive or return or step into all the promises and blessings of God on the basis of faith. And maybe you've done that. Like, maybe, maybe you have uh, done that at some point in your life. And maybe it's satisfying enough, but maybe you, 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 like me, you just feel like, man, is there more to this? And what I'd say to that is that it's not that there's more, but there is something deeper for us still. We're called to the same thing over and over and over again. Faith hope, love for the Lord. And I think we get tired. We think, oh, there must be some other, something better out there, right? And it's precisely that kind of thinking, right, that draws us away from, from the gifts that we have. Maybe you're sick of yourself. Maybe you're sick of, of living in your own head. 
Maybe you can't stop yourself comparing. You can't stop the bitterness. Maybe you have, you have unforgiveness in your heart. Maybe you have anger. Maybe you're just like stuck in grief. Maybe you like have uh, intrusive thoughts. And you think, how could God bless my life? And the truth is that there's this, there's this two-way thing that needs to go on. It's, it's number one, like, we receive from the Lord his gift that's freely given. Jesus came, lived, and he died, and then he rose again. And what the scriptures make clear is that he did that because his death was like a sacrifice for our sin. His blood pays the price so that we would know that this blessing, there's nothing stopping it. It is just like flowing from Jesus Christ. He's saving. He's redeeming. He's restoring. And he opens up those promises to anyone who would come simply by faith putting their hope in him. That forgiveness comes to anyone who would want to receive it. But it also comes with this thing, like in order to receive, we repent. If we read the scriptures, it's that we need to repent. And repentance is sometimes misunderstood as merely stopping doing bad, the baddest of the bad things, right? But repentance, like if we look at the word in the, in the Greek, it's metanoia, and it means to have a new mind. And if I start thinking of my life differently, if I start, stop think, start thinking of my life as just a gift, as grace, as something that's just coming from, as undeservedly, like, blessing coming from Jesus Christ, that's a new sort of mind. And that's going to come along with, yeah, like, turning away from the bad things that I know are inconsistent with receiving that blessing. Yeah, there's going to be returning. There's going to be turning from sin in that. And that's going to absolutely cause me to question my selfishness and my, my unkindness and all these things that God tells me are just like beneath what I'm called to. So yeah, there's, there's a call to turn away from doing bad things, but there is an even greater call in repentance to receive from and have a new mind, a mind that just fixes itself upon Jesus and receives from him all this blessing that's flowing from him, all this kindness and grace, all this hope and potential for, for a life that might be renewed and restored. And like God could have gone to Israel and just said, here's a list of things that you need to do. And when you get down to number 27, then we'll be good again, right? But he actually just simplified it and he says, you know what? Like, yeah, you here, like give you a list of all your failures, but the, the correction is not to reverse them. The correction is, man, would you just return? Can we return? Can we start again? Can you come back to me? Did you come back with your heart before me? Would you, would you let me remind you of my love for you and can I restore you in the middle of that and that's what we celebrate here um, we're gonna do what we normally do come on up take a cup and, and some bread and, and bring it back to your seat and um, 
we'll take it together, all right? So we'll worship, and then we can do this, uh, get these, and then we'll, we'll meet again in just a minute.